take love for granted. Assume it's in the kitchen, under the couch, high in the pine tree out back, behind the paint cans in the garage. Don't try proving your love is bigger than the Grand Canyon, the Milky Way, the urban sprawl of LA. Take it for granted. Take it out with the garbage, bring it in with the takeout, take it for a walk with the dog. Wake it every day, say, good morning. Then make the coffee, warm the cups. Don't expect much of the day. Be glad when you make it back to bed. Be glad he threw out that box of old hats. Be glad she leaves her shoes in the hall. Snow will come. Spring will show up. Summer will be humid. The leaves will fall in the fall. That's more than you need. We can love anybody, even everybody. But you can love the silence, sighing and saying to yourself, that's her, that's him. Then to each other, I know, let's go out for breakfast. I am the blossom pressed in a book, found again after 200 years. I am the maker, the lover, and the keeper. When the young girl who starves sits down to a table, she will sit beside me. I am food on the prisoner's plate. I am water rushing to the wellhead, filling the pitcher until it spills. I am the patient gardener of the dry and weedy garden. I am the stone step, the latch, and the working hinge. I am the heart contracted by joy, the longest hair, white before the rest. I am there in the basket of fruit presented to the widow. I am the musk rose opening, unattended, the fern on the boggy summit. I am the one whose love overcomes you, already with you, when you think to call my name. Once upon a time, isn't that how all the best stories begin? And today I have one of the best stories for you. One of the best stories from our universalist tradition. Some people have even called it a miracle story, so unlikely it was to have unfolded in this way. Anyway, once upon a time, or to be more precise, in the latter half of the 18th century, on the coast of New Jersey, in a village appropriately called Good Luck. There lived a man named Thomas Potter. He was a farmer and a universalist. He believed that everyone is saved, that God loves everyone, no exceptions, that everyone is going to heaven. We modern Unitarian Universalists have a variety of views on the existence and nature of God. But when Universalism was new, it was a movement within Protestantism. 
It was a rejection of a judgmental and angry God in the belief in a God of love. Even though some of our beliefs about God have changed, our belief in love has remained constant through the centuries. Thomas became a universalist around 1744. No one is quite sure how he came to this belief. Scholars think he might have been converted by missionaries from a German religious commune in eastern Pennsylvania. He also could have become universalist through his own reflections on the Bible, which others read to him as he was illiterate. There were also some Universalist Baptists in other parts of New Jersey, so perhaps they helped him find or sustain his faith. Though there were other Universalists within a few days' travel, Thomas Potter was the only Universalist in good luck, New Jersey. What would you do if you lived in a town with no others who shared your faith? This was long before the church by mail and the online congregation called the Church of the Larger Fellowship that keeps some of our more far-flung co-religionists connected. So what did Thomas do? He built his own church. He set aside some land and constructed a small one-room meeting house. It was an act of faith. Perhaps he was like Ray Kinsella, the lead character in Field of Dreams, and was in his field one day and heard a mysterious voice whisper, if you build it, he will come. He was so dedicated to his life-giving, life-saving faith that he would do whatever he could for it, and building an empty church was what he could do. And then, his church built, Thomas Potter waited, and waited, and waited, for at least a decade. He hoped and prayed that someday a universalist preacher would preach in his church. In the meantime, he let his neighbors use his church building for their religious services. And then one day, about 10 years later, the hoped for and prayed for preacher appeared. John Murray was an Englishman hoping to start a new life in the colonies. In his native land, he had been a universalist lay preacher and it had not gone well for him. He was excommunicated from the Methodist church where he had been a member. He struggled to find work because people would discriminate against him for his religion and his family became very poor. Both his wife and his child became very sick and the family could not afford any medical care. So both the wife and the child died. Broken Broke and heartbroken, John Murray decided to flee to the North American colonies and start a new life, leaving behind this universalist theology that had caused him so much trouble and so much pain. And then, the series of events so unlikely that miracle might be the best word for them. The ship that was to take him to New York City ran aground on the coast of New Jersey, not far from Thomas Potter's farm. The ship's captain, of all people sent John Murray ashore to look for food as supplies were running out on board. And John Murray, of course, found Thomas Potter. They got to talking. Thomas Potter gave John Murray enough food to sustain the ship's passenger and passengers and crew for a few days. And John Murray mentioned to Thomas Potter that he had been a universalist preacher in England. Thomas Potter was so excited. At last, this long-awaited 
long hoped for and prayed for universalist preacher had arrived. Thomas quickly invited John to preach in his church next Sunday, three days off. And John Murray was torn. He had promised himself that he was not going to preach anymore, as universalism had led to so much heartbreak for him back in England. And yet Thomas was here with this empty church, inviting him to preach. John came to what he thought was a compromise. He told Thomas that if the winds hadn't changed and the ship was still stuck on Sunday, he would preach in Thomas' church. And Thomas, full of faith, replied, The wind will never change, sir, until you have delivered to us in that meeting house a message from God. On Friday, the winds did not change. On Saturday morning, the winds did not change. On Saturday evening, the winds did not change, and Thomas invited his neighbors to hear Universalist preaching the next morning. That Sunday morning, the winds still had not changed, and John preached to a full house in that small, usually empty church. And as the service ended, a sailor came running to the church with the news that the winds had changed. John returned to the ship and continued on his way to New York City. That Sunday morning at Thomas Potter's church changed John Murray's plans, changed the trajectory of his life, and changed the history of universalism in America. John Murray realized that this faith filled his life with meaning. He needed to stand by this faith. He was going to continue to preach universalism. After arriving in New York, he quickly turned back to good luck and spent several years preaching at Thomas Potter's church and in the surrounding area. He later started a congregation in Gloucester, Massachusetts, one of the first universalist churches in the country. He was involved in a landmark case establishing the separation of church and state in this country and disestablishing the Unitarian Church, but that's another story for another day. John Murray is usually the hero of this story, perhaps because much of our denominational history is written by and for ministers, and we like to see ourselves as the heroes. John Murray is usually considered the father of universalism in America, even though Thomas Potter and others clearly show there were universalists on this continent long before John. Then over the centuries that universalism grew and changed and merged with the Unitarians and became the Unitarian Universalist faith that binds us together today. And Thomas Potter's church grew into a congregation of more than one person. And the original church has long since been torn down to make room for more people. It became a Methodist church for a while, but is now back in Unitarian Universalist hands and is part of a retreat center on the Jersey Shore. It's called the Murray Grove Retreat and Renewal Center. Again, John Murray gets all the credit. I think Thomas Potter is actually the hero of this story. The act of building a church where your faith might be practiced, even if you don't know if anything will come of, your, come of it, is a powerful act of courage and faith. He gave up some of his livelihood as he built his church on his farmland for his faith, for our faith. It's hard to not see parallels between Thomas Potter's small one-room building project and the recent building expansion here at People's Church. 
You all chose to make your building more accessible and to add meeting and classroom and office space. You built to better serve your faith and serve one another. Your modern day Thomas Potters. In this congregation, there's a wide variety of beliefs about God. Some of you have told me that you are thirsty to hear about God more in our services, while others have made it clear that God is not a relevant concept to you. Today is a day mostly for the people who thirst for God, as there is no way to talk about our universalist heritage without talking a lot about God. I trust that those of you for whom God is not part of how you make meaning can find meaning in the powerful stories of our history, of radical faith, and commitment to love. I hope you can find meaning in stories of people who have taken bold action in their quest for truth, that you can find meaning in knowing that the God thirst of others in this community is being quenched today. I also hope that you can hear that the God of universalism is not a God of anger or of judgment. This God is not a weaponized word used to tell you you're not good enough. This is a God of love and that everybody is good enough, no matter what. The thing that made our universalist ancestors distinct from other Christians, and they were part of the Christian tradition firmly then, just a radical part of it, was their belief about the nature of God. Thomas Potter lived in an era when the most popular sermon, a sermon and pub- published and passed around in pamphlets, was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Thomas Potter lived in an era when most people believed in this sort of angry God, a judgmental God that would cast people into eternal torment for the slightest infraction. The most prominent religious leaders of the day asserted that heaven was an exclusive club that only the elect would enter. The rest of us, the overwhelming majority, would spend eternity in hell suffering forever. The first universalists on this continent offered a radical alternative to that theology. They believed in a God that was not angry, but loving. A God that was not judgmental, but forgiving. They believed in a heaven that was not exclusive, but expansive. They believed that hell, if it exists, is empty. They described their faith as the larger hope, as it offered hope that all would be saved. Meister Eckhart was a German monk who lived in the 13th and 14th centuries. He is one of the greatest of the Christian mystics, and he believed that it is the nature of God to give birth over and over, eternally, in every human soul that will make room. Eckhart urges each of us to prepare the perfect setting for these divine births, to to prepare nests or even mangers in our souls. He calls people of faith to empty their souls of all ego and attachments and turn the resulting space over entirely to God. God will then fill the emptiness with something new. Thomas Potter prepared a setting for God to give birth more literally than most. His nest, his manger, was an empty church awaiting a preacher. 
Thomas Potter built a church to serve the loving God he believed in, the holy love that surrounds us always and will not let us go. We inherit this tradition of serving love. He knew the church building would never be enough to serve the worshiping community. He, but he opened the space for someone to articulate to his friends and neighbors the saving faith that filled Thomas's life with meaning. He held that space, that empty church, an empty nest, and waited and waited and waited. And how do we prepare room in our hearts for love, for God, for the sources of reason and radiance to birth something new? Again, as a people, you have the literal part down. You have added to this building to making nests and mangers. So much has been birthed here by people or God or some combination of the two. Ideas and collaboration in meetings, learning and connection in religious education classes, good work in offices, gatherings in air-conditioned spaces in the warmer months, which, given this last week, November might be among the warmer months. And you have made room for immeasurable amounts of meaning, of joy, and of service. The non-literal mangers and nests are harder to build, but probably even more important. How do we create a space within us for the new and the holy to emerge? To create that empty nest, empty manger, empty church within us, we need to stop worshiping at the altar of busyness. So many of us run all day from one thing to the next to the next. This seems to be an almost universal experience in our community. I know this about you because when we try to schedule meetings, we pencil them in three weeks out. And when we get to those meetings, we talk about how busy and full our lives are. I know this about you because of conversations and coffee hour and what you post on Facebook. And I know this about you because it is my story too. We try not to let the worship of busyness suck us in, but it is hard. We try to remember that busyness is not our highest value. And sometimes we are more successful at this than at other times. And because this is my story too, I haven't found the magic solution to this busyness, but there is a mantra that is helping me. I heard this first at the religious education retreat this fall, and I believe it was originally coined by People's Church-owned Bob Wallace. The mantra is, do less that means more. And I fully recognize the irony in telling this to you because I spend so much of my time recruiting volunteers. <laughs> and this congregation would not last a day without the efforts of all of you that keep this place going. But I hope that your efforts here to serve this community are the things that mean more in your life, that they help you explore and live your faith, that they help you serve your highest values. But when we do less, that means more. We are creating empty space in our lives, empty space in our hearts. When we do less, that means more. We are inviting our egos and attachments to step aside and creating room for our deepest values, the love that holds us all, maybe even God, to birth something new in us. 
When we do less, that means more. We are gifted with beauty, wisdom, and courage. When we do less, that means more. When we build that metaphorical empty church, we create openings for amazing coincidences, maybe even miracles, and the first chapter of stories that might be told 250 years later. So in this moment, sources of reason and radiance, courage and compassion, God of grace and God of glory, source of love that drew Thomas Potter and John Murray together centuries ago, be with us as we make room in our church and in our souls for the holy to do its work. Help us to do less that means more. Grant us wisdom and grant us courage for the facing of this hour and the living of these days. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.